they do have a pseudo chord carousel in this song. When it goes from C down to a B, you know, I'm not even going to mention it because it, it, it's coming up on mechanization. And everyone knows I hate mechanization, meaning you're putting song structure before what actually sounds good. And in the extensive interview that I heard with Holland Dozier Holland, I don't know what song they were referring to. It could have very well been My World is Empty Without You. But they said that Gordy Berry came up to them. And, you know, he's only interested in making money. He doesn't care about making <laughs> complex song structure. <laughs> he had to put them in their place. He's like, guys, you are getting too complicated. What are you doing? Now, having said that, 1966 would make a fool out of Barry Gordy, uh, and they would go super complicated and make number one hits out of it. Welcome to the Echo Spire Song Destruct Podcast, where we reverse engineer the most influential songs in history. This is a tightly formatted show where we dive into the mechanics of songwriting and production, even though we're not touching on production so much anymore, and I'll get into that in a minute. But we deconstruct chord structure, song architecture, sometimes production design, sometimes arrangements. We rate, we review the effectiveness of all of these song elements and evaluate what we can learn from them so that we can become better songwriters and designers. Today's episode is, I titled it Motown when I introduced it at the tail end of the last episode, but it's really going to be the Holland Dozier Holland songwriting team episode. I'm going to be going into about 20 of their number one hits, going to deconstruct all of them, similar to the Lennon McCartney episode. The theme of the episode is sixths and ninths. I had originally intended to do a sixth and ninths episode with Bruce Springsteen, but after doing the research for this episode, I realized, hey, Holland Dozier Holland did it first. They were the kings of sixths and ninths. And it's funny because they don't do too many sevenths. And I think Beatles are the kings of sevenths. <laughs> but in any case, we'll get into the details in a minute. Welcome to the show, Ryan. Hello. What does Holland Dozier Holland mean to you, Ryan? They are the names that I hear referenced the most as the only real competition to Lennon McCartney in the pantheon of songwriting gods. What about Jagger Richards? Not in my book. And isn't that strange? Because Jagger and Richards, when you think twice about it, you're like, how come I don't tend to hear about them as being an awesome songwriting team i mean they have plenty keep in mind they're all kind of blues numbers maybe that's the reason uh they, they tend to be a bit repetitive they don't have that story arc that the beatles composition list and holland dozier hollands as i'll demonstrate have they had that kind of story arc where it goes from simple to complex and maybe back to simple again because everybody has their uh let it be in them or they're going back to their roots album that people's careers tend to go simple complex back to simple maybe maybe the stones overstayed their welcome to they stayed too long at the party like aerosmith they sort of uh have an inconsistent career post let's say 73 or 75 or somewhere they got plenty of good songs that come out thereafter start me up but they, they become a bit of a flash in the pan kind of act before going back into rehab. And then they kind of surface again for another hit and then they go back to rehab similar to Aerosmith for that matter. So Brian and Eddie Holland, they were the two brothers and they ended up meeting Lamont Dozier 
who was another songwriter. They meet at Barry Gordy's Hitsville. This is real early, 1959, 1960. So this is before Motown really has any big hits. They did have Money, which we covered, but that wasn't a number one. They don't actually get their number one hit for Motown until Please Mr. Postman comes out, which is 1961. So 1961, Please Mr. Postman, famously covered by the Beatles. I'll just bring it back there because Lennon McCartney were already admiring, and this was one of the ones that they liked. Please, Mr. Postman. Very simple chord structure. By the way, I've transposed to make this easy because I'm going to go through so many songs so that I don't have to talk in terms of one, four, five, six, two. I transposed them all to C to make it very easy. Ah, nice. Yes. So, Please, Mr. Postman is a very simple C, A minor, F, G. That is your very prototypical 1950s chord progression because almost every single song is C, A minor, F, G. It's a variation of 1, 4, 5, which is C, F, G. But it throws in the A minor to give it that little bit of, um, what, what would you call the A minor in that chord progression? What's that emotion that it evokes? Because there's a big difference between C, A minor, F, G and C, F, G. I don't know, but 1, 6, 4, 5 is so overused. It's just a very easy chord progression for even the layman. Like when you start learning how to write songs or when you start to learn chords, you're going to figure out very quickly that those four chords, you can almost lay any melody. That's what I'm thinking, because if I have a melody and I like and it's just obvious that one, six, four, five is the best one, I go, oh, then that's fine. Right. It has to come up organically. Otherwise, you're not going to choose C, A minor, F, G. Right. When you put yourself into that chord progression, you're ultimately going to have to climb your way out of it through either some kind of intense instrumentation or some kind of intense guitar solo or some riff that makes it new. Otherwise, it sounds like every other song on those four chords, which surprisingly, there are probably thousands of number one hits using those same four chords. As we'll see with Holland Dozier Holland, they start there and every single number one hit that comes thereafter is really just a variation, but they do come up with some very clever variations of it. So let's go through it. I don't have any history to cover here, so we're going to be doing a bunch of chord architecture deconstruction on this episode. A quick overview of some of the things that Holland Dozier Holland used besides sixth and ninths, which are in every single song except for one that I'm going to cover. They use a lot of two chord grooves, such as going from C to D minor or C to F, just going back and forth. It's almost like a dance where they're going from left foot to right foot. And by the way, there's there's three kinds of two chord grooves, and they use them, all three of these. You got the two chord groove, which might last an entire bar on one chord before switching to the next chord and then repeating. Then you got the kind that might switch every two beats, and then you have the kind that might switch every beat very quickly. Two chord grooves are very common throughout all music, not just Hollanders or Holland, but uh, I think it's one of the first bands that we've covered. We've covered a lot of the more uh, complex songwriters. This is one of the teams, and they do get very complex in the mid-60s. Another thing that they're going to demonstrate that Aerosmith was not able to demonstrate is six half-step jumps. In other words, where you're going from E to B flat or from C to F sharp. When you're jumping up six frets or six keys on the piano, we'll just call it a six jump. Aerosmith, it's one of the rare tricks they were not able to evidence inside of their music between all the songs we covered. 
Another thing that Holland Dozier Holland will use a lot of is descending scales. Maybe about four out of these that use the descending scale. The Beatles use descending scale a lot. And of course, they use boxes all over the place, which are basically just a circle of fifths, you know, going from G to D, then to an A, then to an E, just moving up or down five frets, the circle of fifths. We talked about, please, Mr. Postman, Brian Holland wrote it when he was only 20. So again, these guys are very young learning how to write music when really the industry was still learning to write music. As we've discussed on other episodes, the chorus hadn't even been invented yet. So there wasn't that much to learn from. They were having to invent choruses in order to write the choruses. Mm -hmm. There's only a few songwriting teams that I think were on the cutting edge of inventing stuff. Lennon McCartney, I think Burt Bacharach, Barry Gordy, you could uh, give him some credit, mention of the pest Quincy Jones, and Holland Dozier Holland were basically the students of Barry Gordy, and they became the teachers very quickly because they had the synergy between the three of them. They started to figure things out. Their songs get more and more complex. First number one hit was Please Mr. Postman. Second one is Heat Wave. Whenever you call my name, something inside starts to burn in, and I feel with desire. Heat Wave comes out 1963 by the Marvelettes, the same band that did Please Mr. Postman. Again, they're using ninths. Could it be a devil in me? Is this the way love's supposed to be? That's a ninth. Supposed to be. The ninth is usually the catchiest part, <laughs> which is the reason why they're using it. I mean, how rare are sixths and ninths? If an artist uses a sixth or a ninth, they tend to use them on other songs. If an artist doesn't use a sixth or ninth, they probably never use a sixth or ninth on any other songs. So it's just kind of in their melodic working vocabulary. Yeah, in this case, it's Holland Dozier Holland because they were very hands-on. Everything that was sung on the record was engineered by Holland Dozier Holland sitting with the guys as they were recording, saying, sing it exactly like this. Mm. Everybody's songwriting, like everybody's. And that's sort of where I want to go with this uh, on future episodes, like, uh, spoiler alert, I think the next episode I'm going to do Metallica. They use six jumps all over the place, like when you're going from E to a B flat. They use those all the time. Nobody else uses them. And of course, it makes sense why they would use them because they got that sharp feel. And Metallica is all about making sharp sounding music. Hmm. But yes, I think everyone's got the patterns. Your brain thinks in a certain way. And if you think in terms of six, you're going to write six into all of your music without trying. Right. Here's something else to keep in mind. Please, Mr. Postman has a backbeat. Heatwave has a backbeat. Out of the 20 songs we're going to talk about, nine have a backbeat, meaning one, two, three, four. Ten have quarter notes, meaning there is no backbeat. It's just constantly the, the snare hits on the uh, one, two, three, and the four beat. Right. I always thought that Holland Dozier Holland was actually before I did the research for this episode, I would have thought that 90% of their stuff was quarter notes. So I was actually surprised to find that it's about half and half. Having said that, most songwriters do not write anywhere close to even 50% quarter notes. Most songwriters tend to a backbeat 90% of the time. But they're as high as 50% using quarter notes, not using backbeat. Hmm. And it's almost like a Motown sound. Yeah, You can almost see them as their songs progress, they just keep going back. It's not like they progress into using more backbeat or using more quarter notes. It's like every other song, they're like, okay, we did a backbeat on the last one. Let's make this one quarter notes. Mm. And it's because their songs are so similar with similar chords that they have to change something. They have to either change the instrumentation, 
they have to change the lyric, of course, or they have to change it from quarter note to backbeat. Okay, we discussed Heat Wave. Both Heat Wave and Please Mr. Postman were very basic verse, chorus, verse, chorus, verse, chorus kind of stuff. However, Heat Wave, it did introduce something new. It starts on a D minor. Again, we're in the key of C on all these songs. D minor, which is the two. As we've discussed in the past, it's rare to start a verse, especially at this point in time, to start it on anything other than the root note. To start it on the two, that's very rare throughout all of music history. Right. I can only count it on one hand how many songs start on the two chord. You're my soul and my heart's inspiration. We talked about that on another episode where it's, girl, how can I get through this? It starts on an A minor. It's in the key of G. Third number one hit, 1964. This is where they get the Supremes. And again, every number one hit was written for the Supremes by Holland Dozier Holland. So I'd say at least 50, maybe 60% of all their number one hits that we're going to discuss are coming from the Supremes. Where Did Our Love Go was a quarter note. So this is their first time that they use quarter notes. Where did our love go? Da, 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 da. That's kind of your sixth and your ninths. They're using footstep percussion during this song. Everyone's kicking the floor to actually create the percussion. There's no actual snare or it's mixed very lowly. It's mostly you're hearing the footsteps. Here's the chords. C, G, D minor, G, F, back to C. The whole thing's based on the one chord progression. By the way, with Heat Wave, it starts on D minor, it goes to E minor, and then A minor. That's kind of a cool chord progression in of itself. Two, three, six. And then when it gets to the bridge, it's D minor, E minor, F, G, chorus, C. It's like a heat wave. Where Did Our Love Go, though, is all based on the one single chord progression. C, G, D minor, G, F, back to C. Fourth number one hit uses a backbeat, Baby Love. By the Supremes. Baby love, my baby love, why must we separate my love? This is a cool chord progression. They were ahead of their time. By the way, every single one of their hits has an intro. Barry Gordy said that was very purposeful, you know. Um, right. There has to be an immediate hook, which makes sense. It's standard now, but... Right. And Baby Love's got a good one. It's a cool chord progression because it's D minor, B flat, G, C. So the B flat is that flat seventh to the C. This is 1964. That's a pretty cool chord progression to go from D minor to B flat to G to C. And then that, that's where it opens. Ooh, ooh, baby love, my baby love. It's C, then a B flat over C. So in other words, it's a C seventh with a B flat bass. And you have to play it that way on a guitar or it won't sound correct. You can't play a B flat and you can't play a C seventh you actually have to play it with the b flat bass or it doesn't sound right so c b flat bass on the c a seventh d minor so the a seventh is breaking the key a little bit because it should be an a minor and then it goes to d minor and then for the verse but all you do is treat me bad that's just c to f and then it's got this little tail because in my heart you stay so long that's just f c with an E bass, D minor, G. We could really just call it F, C, D minor, G. A circle of fifths to kind of tie it back. Think about how that intro works. D minor, B flat, G, C. Only used once. Why do you think they're using the B flat in the intro? 
knowing full well what is in the verse refrain with the C B flat bass. <laughs> I don't know. I'm stumped. <laughs> I call it foreshadowing. Again, songwriting is storytelling. And if you want to be a good storyteller, you'll have a setup and a payoff. And the more setups and payoffs you layer in the music, whether it's through the lyrics, through the instrumentation, through the chord architecture, the better off you're going to be at making even the layman understand that you planted something in there. In that intro, having that D minor to B flat to G to C, you're going to hear over and over the B flat echoed in the C seventh with the B flat bass. Mm-hmm. They're actually able to put in the full B flat, but they never show you the B flat as a chord. Again, they just show it to you as a bass. And that's very rare. If you have a descending bass line, C, B, A, it's not hitting C, B flat, A. It's going C, B, A. This is 1964. And these guys are using C, B flat, A. Mm-hmm. An accomplishment for guys who didn't know how to write songs three years prior to this. And they're already inventing stuff. I guarantee you, Lennon and McCartney were looking at that chord progression saying, how do we get that into one of our songs? And I don't think that they did. I know Beatles songs fairly well. I don't think they have a C to B flat descending bass line. Also, what you'll find is they have a five bar refrain and a seven bar verse. Now think about that. What about I'm the walrus? Well, that's using chords A, G, F. It's not just the bass moving to G? Even if it is, it's still not as clever because it should be going A, G, and then F sharp. To go A, G, F, you're sort of in a a common pattern. Going A, G, and then F sharp, that's uncommon. Mm. Because remember what I compared it to. The typical descending bass line would be A, A flat, F sharp. I'm transposing this to the I am the walrus key of A. How about on the run goes A, (laughs) F sharp minor, F, G, A. (laughs) <laughs> for our listeners that's one of uh, ryan's songs that i actually like and uh we got some pretty good parlor tricks in our music that's a good one that a f sharp minor f a i've never seen anywhere else and you made it sound good which is what matters of course. <laughs> unfortunately it did not go number one or even top 10 <laughs> it wasn't even on the album i don't know why all right so back to uh baby love Again, they start playing with the odd numbers of five-bar refrains and a seven-bar verse. But notice what they did. I can almost see Barry Gordy saying, guys, don't get too clever. At the end of the day, we're going to keep this at least 12 bars, like a 12-bar blues, so that we can justify that it's not getting ahead of itself. And it's got a two-leg verse. So they were already coming up with multiple-leg verses. To make me stay away so long. That's the second leg to the verse of, uh, but all you do is treat me bad, make me hot and make me mad. We are on to our next single, Come See About Me. And this has a backbeat, released by the Supremes, has six notes, seventh notes, and ninth notes. Comes out in 1964. Listen to the chord structure. So it's got the two-chord groove going C, D minor, C, D minor. Come see about me, see about me, baby. Come see about me. I opened up my friends duh, for you. Duh, 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 for you. Two chord grooves, C, D minor, pre-chorus. But no matter what they do or say, I'm going to love you anyway. That's D minor to A minor. It keeps me crying, baby, for you. Keep back it gun crying, baby, for you. So come on, tell me. Come on, boy. Come see about me. That's D minor, E minor, F, and then the F minor. 
So won't you hurry? Come on, boy. Come see about me. So they figure out the major to minor. Again, as I've mentioned before, 1963, it's my party. I'll cry if I want to. But again, it was still a new trick. And Holland Dozier Holland likely saw it used on that song. And they figured out how to use it in this song. And they use it for good dramatic effect. They're holding an extra bar there. So won't you hurry? Come on, boy, and see about me. You can tell that it's holding there, can't you? Yeah. There's a two-leg bridge. First leg has four bars. The second leg has ten bars. Four or eight would be common. Having a two-leg bridge is also strange anyways. They tend to be one leg, but they have two legs in this. Remember the D minor to A minor. Finally, the D minor, E minor, F sequence. Holland, Dozier, Holland were being influenced by people like Burt Bacharach, who were releasing his multi-leg verses. They were also being influenced by Little Runaway, where it's got this enormous 22-bar chorus. It might be the longest bar chorus of all time, at least for a major hit. That was 1960. This is 1964. They get more and more complex with the way that they begin to use these bars and the multi-legs, as well as the chord structures, every single song leading up to 1967 before they start to pull it back. Stop in the name of love, 1965. You can tell it's already getting darker. Stop in the name of love before you break my heart. It's a uh, quarter note. It's not a backbeat. It's got plenty of sixth and seventh in it. This is a descending song. The verse is C. C major 7th, which is the, the B. We're descending the bass line. But then it goes to a G minor. Now, why do I call it a descending bass line if it just went from C, C major 7th to G minor? Because it went C, B flat in the bass. Right. C, B, and then B flat. Yeah. They're using half notes. So a, a, a true descending bass line like the Beatles would use or, you know, traditional would be C, B, A. Right. They do C, B, B flat. Mm-hmm. And instead of going to a B flat bass. The B flat is on the G minor. I got you. Yeah. Exactly. They go to G minor. How often do you see that? And then from G minor, they go to a C with an A bass. And if you don't play it with an A bass on that C, it doesn't sound like the song. Hmm. Stop in the name of love before you break my heart. Think it over. Bum, 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 bum. Think it over. Dun, dun. Baby, baby, I'm where, oh, where you're going. Cause each time you leave me, don't. Leg two. I watch you walking down the street. So afraid of losing me. And then it gets into the before you make a big bye bye. leave alone and hurt. Think it oh, haven't I been good to you? That's another leg. Think it oh, haven't I been sweet to you? Back to the chorus. Let's talk about what the chords are. The chorus, A minor, not surprising to get into the melodramatic nature of the chorus. You got to hit the, the sister to the C, the A minor. But watch what they do here. It's a mysterious little six jump. So they play an A minor, then they go to a G, but they don't play the G in the bass. They play the B. And if you play it on acoustic guitar, it won't sound like the song if you're playing a G. You have to play it with the B in the bass. So A minor, G with a B in the bass, and then an F, and then a G. The mysterious six jump happens right there from the B to the F. And if you play it, if you even just listen to it, you'll realize it sounds jarring. It wouldn't sound jarring if they just played an A minor to a G Mm -hmm. 
and then an F to a G. <laughs> so again, what are they trying to prove here? These guys are already beginning to figure out, we got to change things up, or we're going to be writing the same song over and over, which, spoiler alert, they write the song, it's the same old song, because it sounds just like the, <laughs> I Can't Help Myself. Is that true why they wrote it? or? Oh yeah, was, okay. the, the two hits came side by side. Yeah. And it literally is the same song. It's the same exact chords. I'll, I'll show you how they changed one chord just so it didn't plagiarize itself. Hmm. But these guys are very, very intellectual. As intellectual as Lennon and McCartney. And that's the thing. I don't think Keith Richards and Jagger are intellectuals. I think they're smart. I don't think that they're intellectuals about their songwriting, though. Blues music just doesn't lend itself to saying, let's get real intellectual about this one. Start Me Up is meant to have feel. Paint It Black is meant to have feel. Now, the lyrics of those songs are particularly clever, but the architecture is not particularly clever. Mm -hmm. Let me actually back up because Holland Dozier Holland is a cool songwriting team. I saw an extensive interview with them, and the way they worked is one guy was very gifted. That One of the brothers was gifted at melody and lyrics. More on the lyric side, he, he was more of the polisher of the initial melody that his brother came up with. His brother came up with the song, the chords, and the melody. Dozier basically just came up with the ideas, oftentimes just coming up with the title of mm. the song and maybe some of the chords. But the brother, Brian Holland, would always usually come behind him and say, you got something going here, but we need to change a few of the chords. This wouldn't be a number one hit with these chords. Right. So he would polish it, and then the brother would polish the initial melody, but they all knew their place. To compare that to the Lennon-McCartney dynamic, I think that they were both equally strong in all of their, the songwriting aspects. Yeah, Either one of them could punch in on contributing a bass line, a guitar chord, lead guitar line, a melody, a middle eight, anything. Either one of them could complete the other's thought, which is what makes them the kings of songwriting. Back in my arms again. This is now he's back in my arms again, right by my side. This is a number one hit. I actually like the song, but I didn't think it would be a number one hit. It's kind of a basic song, but this is in the middle of the Supremes having, you know, number one after number one after number one. This one I think snuck in. In any case, it's a backbeat, not a quarter note. And with back in my arms again, uh, it's just C to F, back and forth, back and forth. For the pre-chorus, it's F, G, E minor, A minor, and then back to chorus. Is there any difference you could reference as to what benefits come from a backbeat versus a quarter note? The quarter notes are more of a march. The backbeat is more of a snap. So th there's there's just a different feel involved in those. If you were to play something like... Standing in the Shadows of Love. Now, Standing in the Shadows of Love is quarter notes, but I'm oversimplifying. It's actually got like a little percussion in there, but it is all hitting on the quarter notes with like a little bit of a, a snap and a, a whip to, to the quarter note. I want to run, but there's nowhere to go. This is a march. Choo, 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 choo. Right. It'd be different if it was, I want to run, but there's nowhere to go. This is more like a, like, almost moving left to right, like snapping your fingers, mm -hmm. more of a dance almost. It, it's not a march, like paint it black is a march. I want to see it painted, 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 painted black. That's a quarter note march. Right. I think one's more aggressive than the other. As I've alluded to last episode, I think that there's soft chords and there's sharp chords. Like if we're in the key of C, E flat's a sharp, 
D minor, that's your soft. And anytime you're jumping back and forth between soft and sharp, you're resolving something or not resolving something, depending on which direction you're going. And all storytelling is, whether it's you know reading something on a page or watching a movie or listening to a song, is it's setups and payoffs, it's resolves and things not getting resolved. And similarly, quarter notes versus backbeat, they're providing some different feel that allows certain other instruments that are layered over top of it to resolve in a different way. In general, with quarter notes, the drums are taking up more bandwidth, so there's less bandwidth for any other instrument. If you have a backbeat, there's more room in there for a bass to snap where otherwise the quarter note would would have been if it was you know four quarter notes in the measure. Mm-hmm. I think bandwidth is probably the best way to describe it. Anytime you're looking at production choices, number one principle of art is less is more so that you're not getting a wall of sound and so that you can distinguish and kind of prioritize your ear can make sense of what am I supposed to be hearing? That's the reason why quarter notes are not used as often because it kind of drowns out ever so slightly other abilities for other instruments to fill the bandwidth with uh, diversity, more textures. Makes sense. Next hit, I Can't Help Myself. And again, I'll just do it with It's it's the Same Old Song because both of these songs are based off of this chord progressions. So I Can't Help Myself. Sugar pie, honey bunch. You know that I love you. I can't help myself. I love you and nobody else. It repeats that same line throughout. One interesting thing to note here is that even though it's the same verse refrain over and over and over again, it goes refrain, verse, verse, before going into a solo, before coming back to refrain, then hitting verse, then hitting a middle six, tearing up my heart, breaking up my heart, no matter what I find, my love I cannot hide. Come on, sugar pie, honey bunch. So it's got a little middle six in there, not a middle eight, not a middle four, middle six, because again, these guys are beginning to experiment with different measures. But after the middle six, it goes to three refrains in a row. Now, the only difference between the refrain and the verse is that one says, I can't help myself. The others don't. The others just have some other melody over that that sounds just like it. And they do this a lot in their music, which is the reason why I'm highlighting it. They couldn't come up with another melody. They just only mention the title of the song when it's the refrain. Mm. When you snap your finger or wink your eye, I come a-running to you. I'm tied to your apron strings, and there's nothing that I can do. It's the exact same thing as Sugar Pie Honey Bunch. You know that I love you, <laughs> but they they only use Sugar Pie Honey Bunch, and I can't help myself, on the first and the last. They're basically using it as bookends and then surrounding verses in the middle. Now, the same old song, they don't do that. The chord progression for I Can't Help Myself is C, G, D minor, F, G. The same old song is C, C, D minor, F, G. Mm-hmm. The only thing that changed was they didn't go to G. They stayed on C. It's the same old song with a different meaning since the verse to It's the Same Old Song is you're sweet as a honeybee, but like a honeybee stings, you've gone and left my heart in pain. Then it gets to the chorus. Now it's the same old song, but with a different meaning since you've been gone. In the verse, it's C, C, D minor, F, G. In the chorus, it's C, G, D minor, G, F. Notice what they did there? The chorus of It's the Same Old Song is the same verse refrain 
as in I can't help myself. But because it was so similar, they changed it. Instead of going FG, it went GF. All right. Similarities have been pointed out before. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, the fact that the songwriters, Holland, Dozier, Holland, were making fun of the fact they're basically breaking the fourth wall. Yeah. Telling their audience, it is the same old song, <laughs> <laughs> but we changed one chord. <laughs> so we've been in 1965. As any fan of rock and roll history knows, 1966 and 1967 was when they peeled the uh, cover off the ball. But even before we get there, in 1965, the greats like Lennon McCartney released Rubber Soul, and Holland Dozier Holland released I Hear a Symphony. Whenever you are near, I hear a symphony, a tender melody pulling me closer, closer to your arms. Was there an understanding in the mid-60s that it was sort of these two camps were kind of leading the charge or is that something that's only known in retrospect in retrospect everyone knows that lennon mccartney would go on to have the most prolific career the most diverse songwriting structures but at the time there were plenty of other bands who no one knew if they would have a one-year career or a 30-year career uh such as the zombies who were very inventive love and spoonful were very inventive so every band of this era, if you listen to anything from 1965, they're all very inventive. The only thing that Holland, Dozier, Holland, and Lennon McCartney have is how consistent they were. I guess they were a little bit of a disadvantage too, because they weren't the artist, so people wouldn't have. When we were learning to songwrite, Lennon McCartney was my first love, but Holland, Dozier, Holland was my second, because the second I realized that all Motown songs kind of sounded similar, I figured out that oh, well, they actually have the same songwriters, and then that became. So much cooler to me because Lennon McCartney, yes, they got to have their cake and eat it too. They got to be on stage and uh, behind the uh, the songs, which is cool. Hollanders or Holland to me always had this elusive, like the man behind the man, like the magician. Right. I've always kind of uh, wanted to be a producer, actually, like more of a George Martin figure or a producer in a movie studio, because these are the guys who actually have a lot more to do with the record than even the songwriters tend to have to do with the record. It just so happens Lennon McCartney tended to be their own producers as well. Even though George Martin was there probably doing the lion's share, Lennon McCartney were making sure that certain instruments, certain uh, risks were being taken along the way. They were pushing Martin. I mean, by the end, Martin was pushing them. So I hear a symphony. Here's where the cool part comes in. I'm lost in a world made for you and me. Now, if you haven't heard the song in a while, that Part might not even uh, jump out to you the way I sung it, but take a look at these chords. So whenever you are near, I, I hear a symphony. It's C, G, G minor, D minor, F, G. Okay. So again, pretty cool. C, G, G minor, D minor, F, G. When it gets to the I'm lost in a world made for you and me, it goes from G down to F minor, E flat minor, G C. That is cool. It's pretty cool. And it, what all they're doing is they're actually changing to the key of A flat. Don't oftentimes see that maneuver going four half steps down. You might see something more like a, the key of G next, or maybe the key of even A, but you're not going to oftentimes see C going to A flat. And they get to A flat by going to F minor, which is the sister of A flat. Now we get to 1966. 
My world is empty without you, babe. Descending bass line, C, B, over a C. Then to a D minor, then to an A minor, then to a D minor, then to a G. So that D minor to A minor, while it is all within the chord structure, it's an uncommon box formation to see. It's an uncommon circle of fifths. They do have a pseudo chord carousel in this song. You know, I'm not even going to mention it because it, it, it's coming up on mechanization. And everyone knows I hate mechanization, meaning you're putting song structure before what actually sounds good. And in the extensive interview that I heard with Holland Dozier Holland, I don't know what song they were referring to. It could have very well been My World is Empty Without You. But they said that Gordy Berry came up to them. And, you know, he's only interested in making money. He doesn't care about making complex song structures. (laughs) He had to put them in their place. He's like, guys, you are getting too complicated. What are you doing? Now, having said that, 1966 would make a fool out of Barry Gordy, Uh, and they would go super complicated and make number one hits out of it. Let's talk about You Can't Hurry Love. In the midst of where they're about to go, which is ultra complicated. You can't hurry love. No, you just have to wait. So just give it time no matter how long it takes. Simple song. And 1966 was good for that. Going back to Lennon McCartney, as much as they were doing Eleanor Rigby, they still had their Good Day Sunshines on there. They still had Baby You Can Drive My Cars. As complex as songwriting was getting, they were still trying to tie it back to early 60s pop music. You Can't Hurry Love sounds almost like it came out in 1963, but it is 66, and the chord structure gives itself away just a bit because it's C, F, C, E minor, A minor, F, G. That's not too terribly complicated. The, The chorus is E minor, A minor, F, G. And again, not too terribly complicated, but it's not C, A minor, F, G, which it would have been three years prior. So they're doing C, F, C, E minor, A minor, F, G. So they're kind of going all around the world on that 50s chord progression, drawing outside the lines just a little bit, but still making it sound very classic. The cool thing that I want to mention with You Can't Hurry Love. I need love, love to ease my mind. I need to find time, someone to call mine. My mama said you can't hurry, love. That part that I just sang isn't repeated until the end of the song. It's actually the chorus, but they're singing a different line over it. So whatever you want to call it, Mm -hmm. I just call it the intro. You don't actually repeat that until the end of the song because once it goes into the you can't hurry love now you just have to wait how many heartaches must i stand before i find a love to let and live again it goes back and forth between the chorus and that middle eight or let's call it the bridge back and forth back and forth like three times before at the very end coming back to but wait, dun, 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 dun. I need love, love yep. to ease my mind. I think Beatles might have used a trick like this, but I think it's just being unselfish or being generous and how you use parts of songs and you don't repeat them three times and you use it at the very beginning, at the very end. And that says something to the, the fact that you are listening to a, a handcrafted song. So reach out. Come on, girl, reach out for me. Reach out, reach out for me. This is the first time, actually, You Can't Hurry Love starts to use fourths. And Reach Out, I'll Be There also uses fourths. This is the only song that doesn't use sixths and ninths. Reach Out, I'll Be There. You could chalk that up to the fact that they're starting to get into their kind of psychedelic 
music and six and ninths maybe don't lend themselves. They did use sevenths and they did use augmented uh, fifths, I believe, or augmented fourths maybe. And they do sing on the fourths. And it's rare to hear someone sing on the fourth. It's just, it's a hard note to hit. Here's the intro. Do, 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 do. It's just A minor to E, A minor to E. And if you feel like you can't go on, because all of your hope is gone. Two chord groove, D minor to G, D minor to G. Just like the earlier music from the early 60s, but it's D minor to G, which is a little bit spookier. And of course, this is four tops singing now. So he, they're singing in that ultra high register baritone voice. Come on, girl, reach out for me. And, and by the way, Holland of the Holland Dozier Holland, he was a singer known for singing very high notes, high C's all the time. Four Tops lead singer, I forget his name. He oftentimes hated working with these guys because they always wrote in a high register. And he thought he was writing in a high register because Holland could sing in a high register and he didn't want to transpose it. But it was actually the other brother who insisted on it being in that key for various reasons. One, because he knew, yes, it was tougher and more difficult for the Four Tops lead singer to sing, but it would also produce the desired effect, the rasp. Come on, girl, reach out for me. Right. Four Tops singer hated it because he, he was like throwing his voice out of whack. Harry Nielsen. I think he was genuinely serious that John Lennon ruined his voice because John Lennon pushed him when he was helping him to produce the album. And he kind of famously sings uh, Many Rivers to Cross. And he's blown out his voice. Many Rivers to Cross. Mm. John Lennon you know, made him sing it 100 times and his vocals were bleeding. And he says that after that, he could never sing again. And you know that's the reason for the downfall in his career. I think he was just a drunk, honestly. Uh, self-admittedly, he was a drunk. Easier to blame John Lennon. Yes, it is, always. <laughs> now, if you feel like you can't go on, because all of your hope is gone, and your life's filled with much confusion, because happiness is just an illusion, and your world around you is crumbling down. Notice how there was an extra bar in there. So they weren't content with going with four bars. They had to go with five, five bars. Darling... Reach out. Come on, girl. Reach out for me. C, E, B diminished. Reach out for me. So it kind of hits that weird demented chord. So again, the verse is D minor to G, D minor to G, D minor to G, and then C for the bridge, E, and then B diminished. Which I wouldn't even know how to play on the guitar. You know what? B diminished is the funnest chord to play, or any diminished chord. Okay. Because all you got to do is zero, one, two. Hmm. The fifth string, you're going two, three, four. If you're playing an E diminished, it's zero, one, two. Open one fret, two on the fourth string. Okay. Step in your fingers. That's all you got to do. Unless you play B diminished, it won't sound like it. So again, uh, just to remind listeners, if you can play a B and it sounds like it, then I'm not going to say B diminished. Right. I'll be there to love and comfort you. That's E, A minor, A minor, E. Now, again, we're in the key of C here. So what do you notice? The chorus is playing E, A minor, A minor, E. We're nowhere near C. The verse is D minor to G. So it's just going back and forth between two and five, two and five, two and five. The intro is A minor, E, six to three. We're never hitting root until, darling, reach out that little bridge. Right. Come on, girl, reach out for me. This is something that I don't think most songwriters pay attention to. Because they're probably not even aware of what key they're even in, unless they're playing a very generic song. If you can start your verse 
and start your chorus in a chord that's not the root, yet center your bridge on the root, that's a pretty cool trick. Yeah. Especially because you can kind of feel it in the song where he goes, if you feel like you can't go on, because all of your hope is gone, your life's filled with much confusion, happiness is just an illusion, and the world around you is crumbling down. Darling, reach out. That's the root. Payoff. That's the payoff. I'm bringing that up because they do it again in Standing in the Shadows of Love, which was actually not the next hit. You keep me hanging on with the next hit, but let me just jump up to Standing in the Shadows of Love. And again, it's using quarter notes. This is four tops again. They have augmented fifths. They have sixths and sevenths. It's still 1966. Standing in the shadows of love, I'm getting ready for the hottest to come. So it opens up in the chorus, which is E minor, E minor, C, B. Again, we're in the key of C. I want to run, but there's nowhere to go. C, G. So what do you notice? Just like with Reach Out, I'll Be There, which, which was D minor to G, this is C to G. But it's the same two chord groove. I want to run. But there's nowhere to go, because heartaches will follow me, I know. You got to admit, most of their lyrics are pretty forgettable. I was just thinking about that. I know you're concentrating on the chords. Are they 95% just relationship songs? Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. Every one of them. I, I understand the- It's all heartache. The machine of Motown cranking them out, <laughs> getting number ones. But what I don't know is the album tracks from these bands. I mean, would they just be watered down- Dog crap. <laughs> they were selling singles. Right. And then they put the single on an album. We're not trying to make everything in the world about Lennon McCartney, but right. that's just the world <laughs> I come from. And one of the reasons people love the Beatles is because the obscure album tracks were basically always good. Yeah. If somebody says, my favorite Beatles song is Let It Be and Yesterday, you look at them like they're, okay, well, have you listened to their albums? Beatles were managing their own career, whereas Holland, Dozier, Holland were just writing songs for various artists. Mm-hmm. They weren't just confined to Four Tops and Supremes and Marvelettes. And later on, they wrote for Free to Pain with Band of Gold. Now that you're gone, all that's left is a band of gold. And uh, give me just a little more time. Yeah, That came out in 1970. So they didn't have albums. To answer your question, why didn't they have albums? They didn't consider themselves a band by any stretch of the imagination. And they were getting paid quite well. And in the uh, interview that I saw with them, the singer guy realized that life on the road kind of sucked and he wasn't getting paid anything. Whereas his brother got paid for uh, Please Mr. Postman. That's when he kind of shifted over because he didn't want to be a musician to begin with. He wanted to be an accountant. He got sucked into this because he could sing like Jackie Wilson. So he got sucked into it for about a year and said, this sucks. And my brother's actually making money. So I'll switch over there and make money for a few years. He didn't realize he'd make enough to last him for a lifetime. The point being is these two brothers were actually very intellectual. They came from a musical background. And I think they said their uncle was like essentially a aficionado and taught them a lot. But he taught them a lot about music in general, not about writing a pop song. Who taught them that was Barry Gordy, and then they took it and ran with it, and everything they had known before kind of just stacked on top, and they were able to kind of ride this crest and compete with the Beatles. But going back to Standing in the Shadows of Love, I want to run, but there's nowhere to go, because heartaches will follow me, I know. Without your love, the love I need is the beginning of the end for me, because you're taking away all my reasons for living when you pushed aside all that love I've been given. Now, wait a minute. 
didn't I treat you right now, baby? Didn't I? Didn't I do the best now could now? Didn't I? So don't you leave me standing in the shadows of love. So again, this to me is early rap because you can't sing that. It's no longer a melody. It's just a guy scatting. So as I've alluded to in the past, to me, the first rappers came out of the 60s. I would give it to the four tops. I used to say it was um, Papa was a Rolling Stone, but heck, I'm going to give it to Standing in the Shadows of Love because that's not melody. That's a guy kind of rapping across. Yeah. Here's the chords. Verse, CG. Verse leg two, I would call it. It's hard to even describe, but they're just changing the background music is A minor, E, B diminished again. So what do you notice? (laughs) They kind of liked using that in uh, Reach Out, I'll Be There where it was C, E, B diminished. This time they go A minor, E, B diminished. Mm-hmm. So these guys are the kings of just going, let's change it from a C to an A minor and call it a new song. Yeah. <laughs> and then the bridge, didn't I treat you now, nah, baby, didn't I? That's like E minor. Didn't I treat you now, nah, 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 don't you see me? Standing back to E minor, E minor, E minor, C, B. They hit the root for the verse. But in the chorus, they're on E minor, which is the three for the first leg. Two, they're on A minor, which is uh, your sixth chord. They're using the verse to come back to the root. And it kind of has that upbeat feel for Standing in the Shadows of Love, which is it's surprisingly upbeat because the chorus is surprisingly dark. The third song from this trilogy of Reach Out, I'll Be There and Standing in the Shadows of Love is Bernadette. Bernadette! People are searching for the kind of love that we possess. Some go on searching their whole life through and never find the love I found in you. And then notice when we go into the verse, it's just like (laughs) the others. It kind of hits that two chord groove. And when I speak of you, I see envy in other men's eyes and I'm well aware of what's on their mind. They pretend to be my friend when all the time, sweet Bernadette, they long to persuade you from my side. Sweet Bernadette, they give the world and all they own for just one moment we have known. Bernadette. All right. So Bernadette's fourths and sixth notes again. The chorus is A minor, G, F, E, fairly standard. The verse is C, A minor, D minor, F, G which is kind of a little sugar pie honey bunch, a little please Mr. Postman. Mm-hmm. It's all that stuff that we've kind of seen in the past. C, A minor, D minor, F, G. It's got a second leg to the verse, which is D minor, E minor, G. And again, it's so hard to sing this stuff because he's more scatting than singing. And it has a middle eight, C, F, A minor, E, F. The chorus is nine bars. So again, this is them getting kind of tricky with the way that they're staging their bars. You can think about what the the ninth bar is. It's where it goes, Bernadette, ooh, and when I hold you, they, they kind of do this crescendo and hold it there for an extra bar. And then, of course, on the verse, just like with Reach Out, I'll Be There, they're doing uneven bars. They do a 10-bar verse. I feel like Bernadette is more obscure than most of the ones we've gone over. They got 21 hits that I did, I think, under the in the top five. Now, they have plenty that were past top five. They had six and 10, but I had to limit it some way. So these are all in the top five, but I think 19 of them are number ones, and then a couple of them are like number two, number three, something like that. Love is Here, Now You're Gone was another big hit. This comes out in 1967. Um, I didn't bother. This was a total mechanization thing. It's using all kinds of chords, but it's almost like jazz music, and I think it only was a hit for the Supremes because Supremes are at the top of their game. 
uh, it's a, not a particularly good song, honestly. Who got to decide which bands got which songs? You'd think that uh, the Supremes and Four Tops, that they'd be sitting around, brown-nosing the songwriters, hanging out. Uh, hey, what can I get you? What, you got any hits? You know. Well, so the story as it goes with Where Did Our Love Go, which was the Supremes' first hit, one of the brothers wanted to give it to a different singer in the Motown lineup. He was outvoted by the other two who insisted, and they didn't usually insist, but they said, no, this time you're wrong. We're giving it to Diana Ross. And he he, he didn't particularly like her voice. And they were already up and coming. They didn't have any number one hits yet, but uh, Diana Ross was already a force to be reckoned with. He didn't like her voice, didn't think she was going to do Where Did Our Love Go Justice. And yet she ended up making the song. Where did our love go? Yeah. That's a very supreme sound. Yeah. All the songs that followed for the Supremes, he kind of wrote to imitate that song. It's funny how much he missed it because he said he was oftentimes right, but he was wrong about who that song should go to. But to answer your question, it was the songwriting team themselves. And I'm sure Barry Gordy sometimes had something to say. But keep in mind, he was the first one to say the student has become the master. Right. Like they surpassed him in talent quickly. The Happening. Now, maybe you don't know this song. You might. Um, the Happening is a cool song. And it came out in 1967, which is the age of stuff like Lucy and the Sky with Diamonds, which for all of its crazy, uh, you know, Sgt. Pepper chords, Lucy and the Sky with Diamonds is a GCD, just a one, four or five song. Yeah, the chorus, but not the rest of it. <laughs> right, right. But to that end... Uh, 1967 was all about kind of blending ultra complicated with ultra simplistic, very similar to 66. Yeah, no, I've always said the payoff in Lucy in the Sky is juxtaposed nicely, the simple chord. Right. Yeah. It's definitely the setup payoff thing going on. You, you had to wave through the verse, which was like a swampy yeah. acid wasteland. And then the chorus is, we're going to take you back to 1962 and give you GCD, you know, twist and shout. Well, the happening is... Hey, look at me. I can see the reality. Because when you shook me, took me out of my world, I woke up. Suddenly, I just woke up to the happening. Does that song sound familiar? Not really. It's a cool song. You'll actually like it. Here's the chord. It's C-F-G-C. It's your one, four, five. And it's got this short little leg two. So it's C-F-G-C. And then for the leg two, it just goes up to F before hitting the refrain, which is E flat, A flat, C sharp, G. So notice what they did there. E flat, A flat. That's pretty strange because the E flat, that's that sharp, that three jump from a C to an E flat. Then they come down to the A flat to get it back onto the track to mechanize it, but it sounds good in the song. They got to jump from A flat to a C sharp. Think about it in terms of the key of C. C sharp shouldn't be anywhere around a C, but it's right next to it. Then they hit the G. So again, the, the chord sequence is E flat, A flat, C sharp, G, C. So they're doing a circle of fifths from E flat to A flat to C sharp, but to get it back to the key of C or really to like shift it back onto the tracks, they got to do a six jump from C sharp to G. Okay. And then you're back to the C where you can, and, and it just repeats that over and over and over. They were using that kind of psychedelic, let's show the listener that we can sort of for just three seconds, kind of take them out of the key just a little bit border them on C sharp and put them right back into C without them even knowing it. The layman can tell. Whenever I think about the layman, I think about myself. When I was nine years old and I was listening to this music, I knew something cool was going on there. I had no idea what was going on with the chords, 
but, but it sounded strange and I knew that something was being toyed with and the layman might not understand chords, might not know how to play guitar, but he knows something cool is happening. And that's Holland Dozier Holland going, we're going to play with your ears a little bit. Masters of craft. By the way, that song uses sevenths and ninths, not sixths. And I was trying to find the difference between six and ninths. To me, they're kind of interchangeable, but sevenths are definitely different. You're going to find a lot of sevenths in Beatles music. It just has that sharp sound, which most of uh, Holland Dozier Holland's catalog does not have sevenths. This song did, and it makes sense because it's 1967, which was the land of sevenths and the land of all kinds of weird chords. Finally, we get to 1967 at the very end. This is kind of the end of the, the Motown sound, Reflections. Very cool song. If if the listeners take one song to go back and listen to, go listen to Reflections. It's in the key of A for the verse, the key of C for the pre-chorus and the chorus. So it comes in on A, through the mirror of my mind, time after time, I see reflections of you and me, reflections of the way life used to be, mm. reflections of the love you took from me. Oh, I'm all alone now, no love to shield me, trapped in a world that's a distorted reality. Happiness you took from me, left me alone with only memories through the mirror of my mind, through these tears that I'm crying, reflects a hurt I can't control. The lyrics are grounded and like the typical relationship. It's got this cool psychedelia. I think they, they did it about as well as anyone's ever done it. Beatles do a lot of kind of grounded psychedelia as well, uh, such as like even uh, Dear Prudence. I think a Dear Prudence is kind of that crossover. It's definitely a psychedelic song. It's definitely also like a folk psychedelic. Yeah, it's like folk psychedelic. Reflections is a folk psych- psychedelic song. Good way to put it because folk music is ultimately the most grounded music out there and psychedelic is not, and folk psychedelic is exactly what's going on. It's probably my favorite kind of music. Love and Spoonful, as well as many other bands. Uh, Bob Dylan has a few folk psychedelics. Even Like a Rolling Stone. What's the name of that song, Bob Dylan? Which one? The Rolling Stone song. Like a Rolling Stone. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of psychedelic. Now, that's 65, so that's kind of pre-psychedelic era. But still, the way that he sings it the way that the percussion is occurring, the way that the guy's playing the organ. And especially since he was just kind of arriving, it was definitely charged and has a psychedelic feel. So it starts on the key of A, through the mirror of my mind. It goes A, E minor, F reflexive, third, I can't conceive. Notice what it did there. A, E minor, F, C. Well, we know A is not in the key of C. E minor is in the key of C. F and C, of course, are in the key of C. Through the mirror of my mind. That's the key of A. Time after time. That's key of C. And it's the only time I've ever seen a key change happen on the second chord of a chord progression. Hmm. I mean, typically you're going to see a chord a key change happen at the end of a bar, at the end of a chord progression. You're not going to see it happen in the middle of a chord progression. Let's play devil's advocate. Who's to say it's even a key change? Maybe it's just the sharp A and the key of C. And I went back and forth on this, and I'm going to, it simply can't be interpreted that way. So again, it starts out in the key of A. 
happiness you took from me left me alone with only memories. That's definitely key of A. It's just sitting in that pocket playing octaves of A. And then there's this shift that happens where it goes through the mirror of my mind time after time. And that little buildup that's happening, you can tell it feels like a key change. Ergo, I call it a key change. The chorus has a second leg, which is an F major seventh, D minor, G, E minor, F. Won't go too much into that. It kind of sounds a little bit mechanized, a little bit engineered, but still fairly cool chords. It's got a really cool middle eight. All my love, all the tears that I'm wasting, all my tears, all the tears that I'm wasting. The chords are D, D flat, F sharp minor. Sounds like key of A, which, which again is the reason why I say it would be a key change in the verse and why it would be key of A and why middle eight is also in key of A. D, D flat, F sharp minor. To get out of it, it has to play a couple of weird chords. This is a second leg to the middle eight. It plays an F, F diminished. There's that diminished. They love it. And you got to play it or it doesn't sound like the song. So F, F diminished, E, A. To get out of the middle eight back to the verse. Go back and listen to it. And when you hear him say through the mirror of my mind, time after time, there's a key change going on. The lyrics are paying homage to the fact that they understand what they're doing through the mirror of my mind as they change the key in the midst of a chord progression. And I think what they're trying to do is show you what all music composition is attempting to do is get your mind to a place it simply can't reach in the physical world. There's only a few ways to touch the metaphysical world. You can sleep when you go into your dreams. That's not a physical reality, but it's it's real. It's a metaphysical reality. When you listen to music, or when you read a book, it swarms up images in your head. Whenever you're using your imagination, you're being sucked into another reality. It would just call it metaphysical. One of the easiest ways for anybody to kind of transcend and to feel like the need to dance or the need to tap their foot, or when you listen to music and it's just transporting you some other place, music does it the best out of any other art form. And Holland Dozier Holland knew it. And in 1967, when they wrote this song, everybody was experimenting with these mind-altering drugs, and they knew what they were doing with that chord change had this subtle mind-altering effect, and they threw in a lyric about it. Through the mirror of my mind, time after time, I see reflections of you and me. So again, then they tie it into the folksy stuff or the more grounded stuff. It's just you and me again, not the mirror of my mind anymore. Cool. Wrapping it up. Uh, give me just a little more time, as I said before. That was from chairman of the board of the band. Uh, still has ninths, still has sevenths. Give me just a little more time and our love will surely grow. Baby, please, baby. That's a ninth right there. Their last number one hit was in 1967 with Reflections. It took them three years to 1970. They had left Motown and they finally got some work and wrote a number one hit with chairman of the board. You know, Barry Gordy moved out to L.A. I'm not sure why they broke up the partnership, but Barry Gordy moved to L.A., they probably didn't want to go, or maybe they got too much uh, ego and thought we can keep more of the money for ourselves and set up their own label. Who knows what happened? But they did hit a number one with Give Me Just a Little Bit More Time. Very simple chord progression. They go back to C, A minor, G, F, right where the, it all began. Now, the verse, they do a little C, G, B flat, F. So a little bit of a box there, and they get that B flat back in. The last one, Band of Gold. It's a quarter note. Very simple chord progression. C, G, F pretty much the entire song. 
and then they do C to F, C to F on the like a second leg, but they keep it very simple. However, Band of Gold has a six-bar verse and a four-bar refrain. So again, they were still experimenting with bars and whatnot. That kind of wraps it all up. We've seen how their career climbed, how it kind of ended. Uh, they had many other hits besides these. These are just the number ones and a few number twos and number threes. But our next episode, let's go with Metallica. And just to let you know, I think I want to do Blur thereafter because we all know Blur's got some strange chords. It better be from Great Escape. Yeah, Great Escape, even on their first album. Yeah. They had cool chords. There's no other way. There's no other way. Yeah. But I want to do Metallica first because they've always struck me as being almost like the Beethoven or Mozart of heavy metal. And I sort of want to see what exactly is going on there. I used to be able to play all their guitar riffs, but I never studied them from a chord architecture point of view. I just, you know, knew the riffs. Yeah. So uh, we'll talk about that in the next episode. Anything else to say about Holland Dozier Holland before we close it out? No, I think you covered a wide swath. All right. See you in a month.